Luke chapter 2, very familiar to us. I thought about reading the opening. You probably have it memorized, in fact, as a decree goes out. But we're going to start in verse 7. The first six verses tell us that Mary and Joseph have traveled down from Nazareth, gone up the hill to Bethlehem, the city of David. And in verse 8, the story shifts from them, the baby being born, lying in the manger, to verse 8, the shepherds that are in the same country or the, the hill country. And today, as we examine an insignificant event at the birth of Christ, I say it's insignificant because the people involved, the shepherds involved, were never spoken of again. The event was lost, in fact, on the hillside for 30 years until the Gospels are written. No one ever speaks of it again. There's no record of it. And then the Gospels are written, and we have the account of these shepherds on the hillside standing before an angelic choir. We all know that these first witnesses of Jesus' birth were poor shepherds. We delight in the fact that God chose poor shepherds, lowly shepherds, to be the first eyewitnesses and blessed them and gave them the opportunity to be, think about this, the very first to bow down before the feet of King Jesus. And we could say that Mary might have, or Joseph, but uh, these, these shepherds come to be the first eyewitnesses. And so I ask, how well do we understand the significance of this choice by God? Years ago, my son asked me, Dad, how old do you think the shepherds were? Could they have been boys? And I know why he was asking that question. He was asking because he was imagining himself in that same position. He was placing himself in the storyline of Scripture, and subliminally he was asking himself, what would I do if I were first to see Jesus? And we should do the same. It's not bad to place ourselves in the context of Scripture and ask, what would I say, or, or uh, what if God chose me to do this or to do that, or what would I do? If I were the shepherds. And so let's think about the shepherds today and ask ourselves, what would we do if we were the shepherds? And so let's start in verse 8. If you would read with me, we'll read to verse 20. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them unto heaven that the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which they were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Well, these shepherds uh, would be poor peasants. They're workers, and they're working here in the night. So there's a, there's a kind of a, 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 a little bit of guesswork that is needed here. Either these are poor shepherds who have to watch their own flocks during the nighttime, or they're hirelings who are paid to watch the flocks of those who maybe had a little bit of money. And if they're hirelings, they would be the, even, the, even poorer than the poor shepherds. So regardless of who they are, we don't know their names. We're told nothing more about them after this story ends here. In verse 20, we never hear of these shepherds again, but they were certainly poor workers in the nighttime. Night was a time of, of weariness. And so if, if a, uh, a farmer or a wealthy herdsman had money, he would pay others to watch so that he could sleep in his own bed at night. And here these poor shepherds are sitting out in the cold lonely darkness it was a time of danger this is when the the animals would most likely be attacked when they needed the care of a shepherd and so they were kept close most likely maybe even in a pen in fact often shepherds would cheat or or, uh, shepherds or hirelings would sleep in the doorway of the pen to uh, protect them and here they are in the middle of the night it's time for their work when uh, the announcement comes and all of this is very important, right? God gives us these little details for a reason. And, it, and it, it tells us where God's heart is. He doesn't call the most uh, wealthy or prominent people of society to first come and bow down before the Savior. And we say, well, there's wise men coming. Yeah, likely the wise men didn't come until year two. And they came from afar. They're not even Jewish. And so who does God choose of the Jewish nation to come and be the first to bow the knee before the Savior? He chooses the lowest people of society. They were uneducated, unclean, the bottom of society, poor men, young men, possibly old men, possibly even older children. And all this is important to the narrative of the gospel and the the life of Christ. Christ did not come to call holy people. He came to call sinners to repentance. And so this angelic announcement comes to them, these, these sinners of society, these people who all of society, high and low, would have agreed that they needed the gospel. And so they hear this praise, this praise that comes in the night, the time when darkness rules and reigns, when things are secure and shut up and all is quiet, God will interrupt the quiet and the silence of the night and he'll bring the word into the world. And he uses this praise of the announcement of the angel and then the angelic choir to announce the glory of God. So how fitting it is that Jesus should be born at night. The 
time of physical darkness, in a time of great spiritual darkness, the light of the world comes. We know this to be true because Romans 13 tells us that Christ was born to deliver the world from darkness. In fact, he goes even further in Ephesians chapter 6 and tells us that Christ's birth brings destruction to the powers of darkness. And so these workers at night received, I'll put it together and say, the greatest gift of their life. It's not just the announcement that's the gift. It's who they recognize the announcement to be about. And we see they do recognize the light, the light of the world. And so they become the first witnesses of the light. In verse 9, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. God's glory shines and illuminates the darkness. The darkness is driven away. Soon the spiritual darkness of their heart would be driven away. And this angelic message is the fact of the incarnation, that God has come to the earth and that the Messiah has come. The one, the Savior of the world has arrived finally. This is what they've been waiting for, for for generations, for uh, thousands of years he has been promised and now he has arrived. And all through Scripture, the Lord and light are synonymous. Right in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And what does he say? Let there be light. And he illuminates the darkness. Psalm 43, verse 3 says this. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and and to your tabernacle. John 1, verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Or John 8, 12, where Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. I really like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may... Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In fact, Scripture even ends in Revelation 21-23 by telling us that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the light. He's the light of heaven. He's the light of the world. And so these poor peasant farmers stand there illuminated by the glory of God that's revealed through the message and the presence of these angels and God's glory and his light are spoken of. They're the sole message. And yet we see the reaction in verse 9 is they're terrified. And I think you and I would be terrified. Let's just be honest. If you're sitting out in the middle of the wilderness in the middle of the night, and I do think this is now at the middle of the night, and you're sitting there in the middle of the night and you're tired and it's long you've been out there and you're trying to stay warm and all of a sudden a bright blinding light appears and interrupts the silence and not only this messenger angel who is illuminating the sky but shortly an entire angelic choir will appear behind them singing praise to God. I think you would be afraid too. And I would be too. I'll tell you, I'll be afraid too. I'm not afraid to admit it. There's been several times in my life I have been terrified. And this would have been one of them. I was there. 
It would have been a terrifying experience. Now think about that. Think about the Old Testament. Whenever somebody appears before God or an angel of the Lord, what happens almost every time? In fact, throughout the Old Testament, when, the, when an angel appears, often a person would bow down in front of them, recognizing the glory of this being in front of them. And if it's an angel, the angel would always set, tell him to stand up, do not worship me, God alone deserves worship. But whenever God appears, or Jesus Christ appears, or somebody is allowed into the presence of God, what happens every single time? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah falls down as if he is dead before God. He's terrified at the very presence of the holiness and the righteousness and the glory of God. And so they're terrified. They're very afraid. The glory of God is overpowering them and blinding them. And listen, mankind is often afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid all the time. And so am I. We're afraid of natural things. Sometimes, as a kid, maybe you were afraid of the dark, or you were afraid of thunder, or big storms, or, or afraid of tornadoes, or whatever it might be. But we're also, as we get older, we refine our fears sometimes, and we're afraid of more adult things, like we're afraid of running out of money. And we're afraid of circumstances entering into our life that are beyond our control. I'll tell you what I've been afraid of lately. I've been afraid of receiving a phone call at an odd time. You know what that means, right? When the phone rings and you're not expecting it and it's a loved one calling you at a time that they don't normally call you. I've been afraid of that for my sister. Fear controls us and grips our hearts at times. Not unlike these shepherds. In fact, I would say that mankind is most often controlled by fear. The fear of the unknown. We don't know what's coming. And the problem is we don't trust God enough sometimes. But he's in control of those things. And so here they're terrified. They're very afraid. And what's the angel's first words that he speaks? Verse 10, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. So he tells them right away, don't be afraid. That's a good messenger right there, right? I've got good news. Don't worry, I've got good news. That's like when, you know, my dad has called me a couple times and it's odd and first thing he says is, I have good news. Okay, thank you, dad. We got that set right away. Right, these are good tidings. In fact, they're good tidings of great joy. The word good tidings literally means good news. You know what else means good news? Gospel. The word gospel literally is good news. The good news. So he's telling you, I have a gospel message for you. I have the good news of God to give to you. And so this is, of course, we know salvation to a lost and dying world. And it's not just good news. It's good news that brings or elicits great joy. The joyous, glorious joy of heaven is spilling out to mankind now, right? God's glory and God's love and God's magnificence now is spilling into mankind and everyone needs to know it. He is no longer holding it back. The promise of the Messiah has come. God's love will be experienced at a level that no man has ever experienced it before. That's the good news and the great joy 
the pure gladness of God, of the Lord, for his creatures is going to be felt. And so the long-awaited Messiah has come. Even these uneducated shepherds would have understood what that meant. They would have known perfectly well who the, who the, the angel is speaking of, this Messiah. In fact, he's going to name them here. They would know that he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that was made thousands of years before. The, the most important part of the Abrahamic covenant is not the land of Israel. It's not even the people of Israel. It's the person who comes from Israel, the Savior, the Lord. That's the most important part. And that part has finally arrived. He's the completion of the promises of David, right? This descendant, it's even mentioned here, right? At what an appropriate time that God has brought and, and signified here that the descendant of David has arrived at the city of David where the Savior is to be born and mankind doesn't even understand what's happening. They have no recollection, no understanding of the prophecies that are converging on this moment and bringing about all the promises that God has made. And so he is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And we're told that here. In fact, do not be afraid, for behold, I, will bring, you, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And he gives the name of this baby. He is, he's alluding to the fact that he's the descendant of David. He calls him a savior, who is Christ, the Lord. The word savior means Yeshua. It's the Old Testament name, Joshua. Literally means savior or deliverer. So he's the one who brings deliverance from evil. The one who brings deliverance from sin and sorrow. He's the righteous one who blesses. That's who, this, who the Savior, Yeshua, is. He is the Christ, the Messiah, or anointed one. The, that's the fulfiller of all the pro prophecies of the Old Testament. This Messiah, the, the righteous one, the, the divine prophet, who's not just a prophet, he's also the priest. And he's not just the prophet and the priest, he is the king. He's the fulfiller of the promises, the one who is appointed for this task. And they build on each other, right? Yeshua, the deliverer, but not just the deliverer. He's the promised deliverer, the one who for all ages has been, been known to be coming one day. And not, uh, not only that, he is Lord the Almighty One, the ruler of all, the one who is the authorized ruler of all people. And here, he will be, uh, bring great tidings, and, or good tidings and great joy to all people because he is Lord of all. And this is the glory that is being spoken of, the glory of God revealed. In fact, this baby will bring the glory of God to all of mankind. Please don't miss the significance here of this good tidings and great joy, this glory. By the Savior, Christ, the Lord, new perspective or depth of thought, depth of knowledge of God's will and God's nature will be known. Now think about this. There's, there's going to be a new understanding of God's holiness. 
All through the Old Testament, we, we know of God's holiness, right? In the building of the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple, God's holiness is the very central thing, the holy of holies, where the ark of God rests, that no man can touch, because mankind is separate from God. And everything about the tabernacle and everything about the temple signifies this separation of God and man. Think about, even go back further, the Garden of Eden. God placed cherubim at the entrance of the garden so that mankind would never again enter into this place where God's holiness presides. Think about the Old Testament as Abraham and Isaac and and, uh, David at times come before the Lord and what does God say? Take off your sandals, you are on holy ground. There's this signifying holiness of God, this separation, this sanctity uh, of being in or near or around God. And yet now we're going to understand a new depth of God's holiness. For God in his holiness seeks to save those who are lost. And God's holiness that has been represented in separation of God and man will now be represented in the joining of God and man through the righteous holiness of Jesus Christ. It's not that God changes. God doesn't change. But we learn through the life and the ministry of Jesus, we learn about new depths of God's holiness or a new understanding of God's power. The God who is tempted who, who in the New Testament is tempted like we are yet without sin. We know God can never sin, and, and we have this powerful, magnificent Lord of all who can, can judge the world through Noah's life and this ark and absolutely wipe all of mankind off the earth, and yet at the same moment, very delicately sustain Noah and his family. And we learn about the power of God the magnificence of God. We read uh, uh, 1 Kings 19. I love the story of Elijah as he stands up on the mountain and there's this great earthquake and this great fire and this great wind and yet God comes and he speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. The power of God is on display. And finally, Jesus comes and we see his power on display as he lives in magnificence before the sinful people of this world is tempted like you and I, never sins. In fact, his power is seen in a great gentleness that we've never seen before. Or how about a new understanding of God's love, which Ephesians 3 tells us the length, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love is beyond comprehension. When we read of the Old Testament God, in fact, many people who are biblically illiterate read the Old Testament and the New Testament and they say it's two different gods. It's not. They're just poor students of God's word and they don't understand who God is and they don't care to understand. But you can look at the Old Testament and, and God's love is there. It's very clearly seen. And yet there's this new depth of understanding in the New Testament where God himself bows down and picks up the hand of a leper and lifts him from the gutter, where he touches the eyes of the blind and gives them sight. 
is this new depth of understanding of, of God's love, and it's found only in the life of Jesus. That's how we see it. That's the glory of God being revealed. God never changed. But he's now giving to mankind the very thing that they need. And this message of hope drives away the fear of the shepherds. In fact, we see the angel tells them that where they'll find the baby. Listen, Bethlehem is not a very big town. It's probably only one baby that's been born any time recently. And they're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, meaning a brand new baby. You're going to go and you're going to find this brand new baby. This baby is different. This is Christ the Lord. And when they hear this message and we hear, when they hear the glory of God and they hear the magnificence uh, of the fact that this baby is the Savior, Christ the Lord, the fear is gone. They would understand this would mean that because this baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes, it's not found in a palace. It's a poor baby. It's found in a common man's home. And they have nothing to fear as they go to bow before the king. And so what happens is they get new sight. The glory to God is announced. The angels sing praise to the Lord in verse 14. Right, This heavenly host appears. We don't know how large it is, but it's called a multitude. And this multitude are, appears behind the angel and sings glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. That's the message. That's the good news. That's the good tidings of great joy. And so it was, in verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said one to another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste. The fear is gone. Why is the fear gone? Because they have they've seen not the Lord, but the glory of the Lord. They've been told of the glory of the Lord. They have learned of who God is. They have learned that there's this babe, this small child, who is the Messiah, who will be their Savior. And that has driven away the fear. Let me tell you, in life, that is the only way that we have fear driven away in our life when we recognize the one who's truly in control, the Lord. We have nothing to fear so long as we're united with the Lord. And so in obedience, direct, immediate obedience, they respond. And they go. They even say, let us go. Get your stuff. It's time. I don't even know if they took their stuff. In fact, I'm pretty sure they left the sheep behind. So they kind of forsook their job because they had something more important to do. It's not the time of travel. You don't want to travel at night. It's not the time when a new mother wants to receive guests. Right? And yet they came, verse 16, they came quickly with haste. An immediate response. And I think it's because it's an immediate response of faith. Faith is action. James tells us that. If you have faith without action, 
then you don't have faith. It's dead. Our faith is proven in how we respond. And if we don't respond, we don't have faith. And so they respond. The shepherds appear to have deserted the flock and with haste gone immediately to see the king. Now listen, this is either the shortest visit or God doesn't give us much detail here. Because they come and they see the baby and they leave. Verse 16, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. I have no idea how long they stay. It doesn't matter how long they stay. They worship the king and they leave. Because now they have a more important mission. Tell. And tell they do. Right? The sight of the Christ results in an immediate proclamation of who he is. They saw the Messiah in faith. They're not shocked either. There's, there's no indication that they're I don't know, I would have probably been a little bit puzzled if I were them. Most of the Jews were expecting a conquering king, not a lowly baby born to poor parents. We know they're poor because in just eight days they're going to take him to the temple to dedicate him and they have to give the, the smallest offering that's, that's acceptable to God is the offering they give because they're so poor. They're not shocked by the treatment of the king. Rather, they just glorify God. They're praising God after everything that they've heard and they've seen. They left praising God. They left praising God for the hospitality that he had given them, the hospitality of Mary and Joseph, for the message that they had seen with their own eyes. Their faith became sight in that moment. And immediately, it's now morning, immediately they made known the saying which was told them. That's faith. They didn't hesitate. That's the idea, I think, of immediately making known is everyone they saw, they told. By this time, it's morning. People are rising. They're coming out. They're taking their flocks in or out. They're doing different things, and yet they're stopping everyone to tell them. And what do they tell them? They're telling them verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Please do not miss those two words. The angel looked at those shepherds and said to them, Today, your Savior is born. And now what do the shepherds go around telling? Today, your Savior. Is born. He is called the God-man, God in the flesh. Just like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
And so they tell. They tell of their Savior. And they tell the people of the only Savior there is. I ask you, is that how you speak of your Savior? Honestly, there is no better time. I could just make a blanket statement and say there's no better time than now. That's always true to speak of your Savior. But there's no easier time than now, the Christmas season, to speak of your Savior. And I urge you to do that exact thing. Faith necessitates action. Action doesn't create faith. Faith creates action. And the action is the same action here of the, of the shepherds to speak of the Savior, to tell of His wonderful work. And would you look at, at what happens when they tell it? Verse 17, Now when they had seen Him, they made widely known. All right, The idea is to, it's not just they told a few people. They traveled in the entire surrounding area telling everyone of the Savior. By the way, how do you think Herod ends up finding out? These shepherds are doing their job. They're speaking of the Savior. And so they tell the Lord. In verse 18, And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, if you read that verse by itself, that's a good thing. Like, wow, they marveled. They were amazed. They, another word you could use is they wondered. But then you have the next verse, which I think gives us very important context. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now listen, it made the people wonder and marvel, and that's a good thing, right? They're astonished. Literally, the word means they admire what they heard. They thought it was good, admirable. And there's no further mention of any reaction from them. In fact, from the context in the next verse, we see that Mary kept them, pondered them in her heart. And thus there's a comparison made. The people hear the message and they're like, wow, that's good, that's good. And Mary hears them, and it affects her heart. And she will never forget it. In fact, she's pondering it. She's thinking about it over and over and over again. The people of the hillside, the people of the, of the region of Bethlehem, it barely creates an insignificant ripple in their life. And yet Mary, she captures her heart. That's the point. I ask you today, has this truth of the Savior captured your heart? 
not just created a ripple where you say, oh, wow, yeah, Jesus is great. That's good. Oh, what he did, that was, that was really good. That was cool. I'm so glad to, to know that. And then we move on. Or is there something that grips our heart? Right? This is the power of meditation here in the life of Mary. Mary thought carefully over what she heard. When you hear the word meditation, don't think of all the things that, that Western society or Eastern mysticism say. Meditate means to, to mull over or to, to think often in our head over and over and over again about something that is true and righteous and holy. It's not clearing our mind and making our minds empty. It's filling our mind with the right things. And here she fills her mind and her heart with what is true. And she would not forget it. She would not be distracted from remembering the things that she heard about Jesus. Now listen, we, we know the story. We know she's already been visited by an angel. She's already been told that the Holy Ghost would come upon her and she would bear the child, the, the, the Savior of the world. She has already been told that. But now she's hearing it not from an angel. She's hearing it from poor shepherds. And in a, a, a couple years, maybe at most, she's going to hear it from wise men. Strangers. In eight days, she's going to take the child into the temple to dedicate this child, and the man is going to receive this child and say, I have seen the Savior. That's what she's pondering over and over and over. She didn't have a bad dream one night or a strange, uh, a strange uh, uh, you know, event where she thinks maybe she, the God was talking to her, but she's not sure or whatever. No, she is hearing over and over and over again that the child that she has been gifted to raise the savior of the world and she cannot stop thinking about it that's what it means to meditate and a, a non-meditative faith is a shallow faith and so i ask you how carefully do you ponder the truth of god what does meditation look like in your life well we see the shepherds don't stop either in verse 20, when they're done telling everyone in the vicinity and they can't find anyone else to tell what happened, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They continually praise God. And today, you and I are the shepherds. We've heard and hopefully seen the light. We know the truth of the Messiah. We have been witnesses of the goodwill towards men. And so how are you witnessing this message? Who are you heralding this message to? Who are you telling of what you experienced? This transformation that occurred in your life to the point where you can't stop. You can't help yourself. You have to share it with everyone around you. What a challenge these poor, uneducated shepherds are to you and I. And so I ask you, who have you told of the Savior? You've seen the light. You are the shepherd. Go and tell the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we want you to be honored 
glorified. You alone deserve praise. So often in life, our hearts, our minds are gripped by fear. We fear what we do not know. We fear where our country is going. We fear whether our job is as secure as we hope it is. We fear the the dangers of, of illness. We fear the pain of broken relationships. Those fears grip our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid because we would be near you. We would stand before you in righteousness and holiness. We would acknowledge that you are the Lord of all. You're in absolute control. Lord, help us not to be afraid to tell the world around us of you, our Savior. Lord, help us to meditate on these truths, to ponder them in our hearts so that you receive the honor and the glory for them. Probably most importantly in this moment, Lord, there are some here who do not know you as Savior. And it's because they've been afraid. Afraid, too afraid to admit their own failure. Afraid of what other people would think. Afraid of appearing vulnerable before others. Lord, they're broken and they're hurting and they need you as their Savior. I pray that they would not leave without knowing for sure that their sins are forgiven, that you are not just a baby that came to be born to live a good life. You came to die for our sins. You came not just to be a savior for a few shepherds, but for all who will bow the knee before you. So Lord, I pray you help those who are here today, sitting in their own pride, that they would humbly bow their knee before you. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your savior, I urge you not to leave without knowing for sure Christ is the Lord, not just of the earth, but of your heart. And so if you'd like to speak with me today, I'll be at the back. I would love to have a conversation with you and introduce you to Christ.